Well, let's remain standing and let's take up our copy of God's Word and turn this morning. We're going to be taking a break this morning as we are sort of in between sections in the book of Mark. We're going to take a break for a couple of weeks and look at a passage from Ephesians. So let me have you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. We'll read verses 14 through 21, and that is the passage that we're going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks. Ephesians chapter 3, we'll begin in verse 14, and this is God's word. Let us give heed to its reading this morning. Paul writing here to the Ephesian church and to the Reading church, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we are able to sit and to open it and to hear Your words to us, inspired by your Holy Spirit, written by faithful men. Father, we we pray that you would bless our time. We pray that this would be a a profit to us, Father, and encouragement to us uh, as we hear it. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may be seated. The church is a marvelous thing. It was planned by God in eternity past. It was purchased by His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross at a great price. It has come to include people from every corner of the earth, every nation, every language, every tribe, every type of people. It has also come to include, or does include, God's people from the Old Testament. It includes Jewish people. It includes Gentile people. Reconciled all of us together and reconciled to God through the person and the work of Jesus Christ and all for one overarching purpose, His glory. And so the church is a marvelous thing. And in this passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, Paul is praying for the church, and he is, at the end also, praising God in the context of the church. And we're going to take, as I say, a couple of weeks and just look at this and see what the Apostle Paul desired for the church. Of course, we could have picked other places. In fact, in the book of Ephesians, there are two prayers recorded that Paul makes on behalf of the church, but this is the one that we're going to be looking at. In order to kind of, let's get our bearings here, we've sort of jumped into the the middle of Paul's letter here. In fact, we've jumped almost into the exact center of the book. 
But to get our bearings, let's remind ourselves, and perhaps you don't know this, but Paul's letter to the Ephesians, like many of his letters written to either churches or to individuals, uh, that they can all be, or most of them can be outlined very broadly, the most general uh, outline, into two sections. In Paul's letters, there's usually, almost always, a doctrinal section which invariably comes first in the letter and is a foundational uh, aspect of the letter. Then there's a practical section, which is based on the doctrinal section with the practical exhortations that he gives being presented as necessary implications of the doctrinal portion. And so very often when we get to the second half of the letter, it usually begins with the word, therefore as is the case here in Ephesians. The practical section of the book of Ephesians starts in chapter 4. And it starts with the words, I therefore urge you to walk, and then he goes on to explain how we are to walk. We are to walk, he says, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have called. Well, the first half of the book, he's been talking about that calling. He's been talking about that salvation that's been given to them. And he's telling them then in the practical section to walk in a way that's consistent, live in a way that is consistent with the truths laid out in what in the book of Ephesians is the first three chapters. Because of all of this about who God is and who Christ is and what God has done to bring about your salvation, Christian, because of all that, therefore, he says, conduct yourselves in such and such a manner. And... We might as well take just a moment and mention that the first half, the doctrinal section of Paul's letter to the Ephesian church is almost unrivaled in the New Testament for its glory, for its beauty, for the truth, the glory of the truth that it lays out. It begins, remember, back in chapter 1 with that litany of the unequaled blessings that are yours, Christians, uh, in every situation by virtue of the fact that we have been reckoned in Christ Jesus by God. In fact, Paul states there categorically that, we ha- that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. There is nothing lacking in regard to your spiritual need that is not yours, that is not fully met for you in Christ Jesus. In chapter 2, he, he describes how the, the grace and the love and the power of God in Christ has been exercised in your salvation and how we are saved for the purpose of doing the things that God has uh, ordained that we should do. Then he launches into an explanation of how God has extended now in the history of salvation here in the New Testament that he has extended salvation to the Gentiles and how God through Christ has taken the Jews and taken the Gentiles and put them together as one new man not two men, not two trees we've been grafted together into one all one people his people for the purpose of glorifying him And now here at the end of chapter 3, Paul is getting ready to turn his attention to the church's calling, uh, to the the high calling of the church and to the means of attaining that and how we are, again, chapter 4, verse 1, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
And so he concludes that first chapter and, and gets ready for the second half of the book by giving us this prayer, or giving to God this prayer. It's recorded for us. We find him praying God to God. We find him praising God. And prayer and praise are always the proper response to considering theology. If, if theology just affects us in our mind, we have missed it. We have misunderstood it. It should always lead us to prayer, thankful prayer, grateful prayer, and to praise to God for who He is and what He has done. And we have both here in these verses. We have in verses 14 through 19, we have this prayer. And in verses 20 and 21, we have praise. And we could add to that that not only prayer and praise are proper responses to doctrine, to teaching, but practice is as well. And that is where Paul is eventually going to get when he gets into chapters 4 and 5 and 6. He's going to talk about the practice. He's going to talk about the so what. He's going to talk about the therefore. And so this prayer really serves as a a transition between the doctrinal emphasis of the first three chapters and the practical emphasis of chapters 4 through 6. And as Paul begins this prayer for the church, he says he bows his knees before God. That is, he's saying he prays. It was one of the several postures of prayer. He prays and he identifies God here in the beginning there in verse 14. He identifies him as the Father. As the Father, he says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, understanding that strange kind of phrase, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, is a little difficult, but if we think of two things, it will help us. One is that the word translated every there in the ESV can also be translated the whole. It can be the whole family. The other thing is that the word family is a word that really is tied to the word father in the verse before. So it it really talks about the word family is really saying the fathered. So he bows his knees before the father from whom the whole of those who have been fathered in heaven and on earth are named. And the point here is that all of his readers share, including us, share a common family. And more importantly, they share, we share a common father. And if God is the father of the family, the family that is brought forth and ruled over by God the Father is us. It's the church. That whole family of God that we spoke about last Sunday that family that we are a part of. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. And that all fits really the context that Paul has been speaking of, him here, speaking of here in the areas before he got to this prayer because he's been speaking about, and he'll continue on into chapter 4, to speak about the church as a unified institution. He's talked about here in chapters, chapter 2 and into chapter 3 of the fact that Gentiles and Jews are all brought together as one. There is one church, one man, one tree. And so the church is a family. It is the communion of saints. 
Now, human families are wonderful things most of the time, and they're the very basic structure of human society. Families, when they're functioning properly, give us love and protection and training. They give us security. They give us companionship, uh, a structured environment in which we can grow. And that's what the church gives us. That's what the family of God gives us as well. We call on one another. And we call one another, truly, we truly are brothers and sisters. We talked about that a little bit last week. The family of God. We are, chapter 3, verse 19, if you look down there, it says that we are God's household. We're part of a huge family. I remember when we were, I remember Cindy and I went to a a family reunion many years ago for my family, and there weren't very many people there, and even fewer that we knew. But when we lived in Michigan, people would have reunions, and they would rent out church buildings, huge facilities, in order to have their family reunions because they were so big, such huge families. But we are part of a huge family. Not, not just in the sense that there are other Christians throughout the world, but we are a family that is found, as Paul says here, in earth and in heaven. There are those who are in the church militant, the church here on earth, as well as members of the church who are in the church triumphant, in heaven, in their eternal rest. We're all part of the same family. And we have, we we all bear, we all rejoice in, we all rest in the same Father. We are all a part of this family because of the same Father who has brought us in. We are in the church of God, the church of Christ, the people of God, the family of God. And Paul has spoken, and we've talked about what an important institution the church is. Indeed, it's the most important and the most glorious institution in all of creation. It's the means by which the gospel is preached. It is the the means by which Christians are matured in their faith. It's the means by which God is glorified by his people. And it's the one institution that will continue forever. The only one. Human government won't, thank the Lord, The kingdoms of this world will be done away with. And even the human family will not continue forever. I think we looked at that a little bit last week as well, at the priority of the spiritual family into which we've been adopted by God and how it supersedes even the physical family that we enjoy here. I'm not, again, not demeaning the human institution of the, or the God-given human institution of the family at all, but it will cease. In heaven, we won't neither marry nor be given in marriage. That relationship, which which itself is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church, it will have done its purpose. It will have been fulfilled. It will have been consummated. And even that foundational relationship, as wonderful as it is, will not continue. Matthew 22, 30, Jesus talked about that. But the church is forever. The family of God is forever. The spiritual family is eternal. God's people are forever. 
And it is to the one who founded, paid for, grows, and gives his name to that family now that Paul says, I bow my knees and I pray. Now in his prayer, there are several parts. But they're all reaching forward to a goal at the end. And we're going to kind of jump ahead and look at the end real briefly. And then we'll come back and catch up and see how Paul gets there. Everything else in the prayer sort of through, through certain phrases that he uses that's, that's clear, that are clear in the original all sort of pushes towards this. It all tumbles towards what is at the end. Let me, let me give you the flavor of it and read the prayer again with some emphasis on that so you get this. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner... Well, I'm sorry, I'm reading too far ahead. Verse 14. For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see how this all kind of cascades towards that last phrase, or climbs, if you will, to that last phrase. To be filled with all the fullness of God. That's the purpose of Paul's prayer. That's the the goal of it. And that is our goal. To be filled with all the fullness of God. What is the fullness of God? What does that even mean? Well, the fullness of God is the fullness of Christ, because Christ is God. The Bible speaks of it in different ways. In John chapter 1, Christ is said to be full of grace and truth. And it is from His fullness that we receive. Earlier in the book of Ephesians, Paul says that the church is the transforming power of Christ in the world because it is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So to be filled with all of the fullness of God is to possess Everything that there is to have of God. Now, obviously, this isn't talking about deification or anything like that. We will never become God. We will never become little gods. We're creatures. But God pours himself into us. And to be filled with all the fullness of God is to be filled with everything that he offers, everything that he desires for us to have of him. From his nature, to have perfect and full blessedness, to have a full measure of his grace, to have the fullness of the love of Christ. If we put it another way, the desire, the purpose of Paul's prayer here is for God to make us like Christ, the one who has the fullness of God. That is every Christian's purpose. That is your purpose, Christian. The goal which we pursue, the goal which God is working in us, the goal that we press forward towards. Jesus said that it is enough for the servant to be like his master. And for us to be like our master 
is to be filled with the fullness of God. Look over, in fact, you probably don't even have to turn a page here, into Ephesians chapter 4. As Paul works this out in that practical section of the letter, look at verse 13. He's talking about here, uh, and we, we looked at this, how he has given the gifts of men in the church. We looked at that a, a couple months ago, I think. How he has given us apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, and that he's given us that ministry for a purpose. Well, that purpose, verse 12 says, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until, so here's the goal, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. To be like Christ, that is our goal. That's the main goal. That's the primary objective, to be filled with all of the fullness of God. That's the object of Paul's prayer. That's the goal. That's where we're headed. But as I said, Paul takes a few different steps to get to that ultimate. So now we know where we're going. We'll back up and see how we get there. Paul prays for several component parts of that fullness. Do do you want to have everything that God has for you? I hope so. If so, then you'll want to pay attention here as Paul prays here about for the things that lead to that, that contribute to that possession, that fullness. It's a process. God working in us several things, God working several steps in us that lead toward that. And that's what we're going to be looking at here. There are four of them mentioned. The first is that we will be strengthened in the inner man. The second is that we will be indwelt by Christ. The third is that we'll be rooted and grounded in love. And fourth, that we'll be enabled in understanding. That's a pretty lofty prayer. Those are pretty lofty uh, goals. But before we even hit the first one, Let me mention one primary indispensable step of attaining those things. We see it in what Paul is doing here, though he doesn't really mention it as a step. And it's what Paul is doing here. What is he doing here? He's praying. Prayer is essential. Without prayer, none of these other things will happen. And without these other things being true, the goal of being filled with all the fullness of God will never be reached. Prayer is essential. And if there's one great deficiency in the church today, it's prayer. It's serious, biblical, faithful prayer. Christians today, the church today, very often just does not pray. Even a theologically correct, Biblically centered church is nothing if it doesn't pray. A church that that reads the Bible and believes the Bible and preaches the Bible and believes that in Scripture they hear from God, yet if that church does not pray, if they are not reaching out to God together in prayer, there's only one half of the essential conversation going on. God is talking to us 
through his word, but we're not talking to him. The early church, the apostolic church, remember that they were gathered together and and the book of Acts says that they were devoting themselves not only to teaching, not only to fellowship, but also to prayer. The church devoted themselves to prayer and the church needs to devote itself to prayer. Every church needs to devote itself to prayer. And many churches do not devote themselves to prayer. If a church gets better attendance at its potlucks and its game nights than they do at its prayer meetings, something is wrong. We don't want to be that way. Prayer is essential. Prayer is important. It was to the Apostle Paul. It was to Jesus. Haven't we been seeing that in the book of Mark? That Jesus got away to pray, especially before big decisions like choosing the 12 apostles. He went up on, uh, out into the wilderness and he prayed. And that's Jesus. He's God. We've talked about that, why he felt the need and had the need to pray. How much more do we? How much more did Paul? And he prays here. And in order for us thus to be filled with all the fullness of God, first fall, Paul first prays that we need to be strengthened in the inner man. In verse 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, for whom every fam- from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. We need strength. We need power. We need to be built up. We need to be supported. We need to be strengthened. We need to be firmed up. Now, our society, it's all about that, isn't it? Firming up. Of course, the focus is more on the outer man than the inner man. Health clubs and gyms and fitness centers and home machines to to firm and tone and strengthen and so on. But what you and I need is not that. Well, some of us need that too. But bodily discipline, Paul said to Timothy, is only of little profit. What we really need is to be strengthened on the inside. We need to be strengthened, Paul says, in your inner being, in your inner man. He's talking about spiritual health, spiritual fitness, spiritual strength. The building up of our spiritual self, of our heart and our soul. You know, when you were born again, you were recreated by God, the scripture says, in holiness and righteousness and knowledge, and that you need to pursue and see growth in those areas. And those aren't physical areas. The new creation that you are, Christian, is a spiritual creation. The new life is implanted in your inner being, in your heart. He takes our heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh. And consequently, it is there that the battle rages, in our hearts, in our wills, in our affections, in our manner of living. And our actions, therefore, are just the outworking of what's in here. Jesus said that, right? Out of the abundance of the heart... The mouth speaks. The Proverbs, Proverbs 4.23 said, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the issues of life, the springs of life. 
It is here that the battle is first waged. In here, in us, in the inner man. And without change there, there will be no change anywhere else. It has to start there, and, and, and it does. Paul said in Romans 7.22, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But then he said there's a battle. Then there's that battle with the desires that lead in the other direction. The flesh and spirit warring against each other. He talked about it in Romans 7. He talked about it in Galatians 5. And we need strength in that battle, don't we? Every one of us does. The most holy of us, the most mature Christian, needs it as much as the brand new Christian. And it's to be our concern. And we can be thankful that it is the Lord's concern as well. That's a good thing to know. That though our outer man is perishing, that it is because it's, even though it's wasting away every day, 2 Corinthians 4.16 reminds us that our inner man is being renewed. And as a result, Paul says, so we do not lose heart. And don't lose heart. Don't lose heart when it's a struggle. Don't lose heart when you slip. Keep pressing forward. So we pray, as Paul prayed, that, that it would continue. And notice this important aspect of Paul's statement here. This building up of our inner man that he prays for is something that needs to be done to us. Verse 16. He says, he prays that according to the riches of his glory that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Oh, we are to work hard. We are to work hard on ourselves to be holy. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but to always remember who grants us to be strengthened with power. It's God. It is His power. See how we are strengthened in verse 16? It is through His Spirit. It's the Spirit's work. The work of God in the securing of our redemption was the Son's. But the work of God in applying that salvation and working that salvation into us is the Spirit's. It is the Spirit who regenerates us. It's the Spirit who sanctifies us. It's the Spirit who builds us up, who strengthens us with power. Progress in our sanctification is the Spirit's doing. And the evidences of that progress are what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. And the strength that we desire and the strength that we receive is great power. It is divine power. Colossians 1.11 says that we are strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. And what is this power for? Is it power sort of to do all of these signs and wonders? to do miracles, to, to grow back limbs, to claim this or that. No, Paul finishes that statement in Colossians 1.11 uh, where he says that he prays that we would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Then he says, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Steadfastness and patience. The things in here that we need. It is power for living a Christian life. Power to become more like Christ. 
Now we are going to see here as we work through this uh, the rest of today and next week that there's a very specific purpose for this spirit-given power for which Paul prays. We'll see that. We'll see that revealed sort of towards the end of this. But we know that it is the power for ultimately being filled with all the fullness of God. Which we also see by looking at the next step that Paul talks about. We've seen that he prays that we would be strengthened in the inner man. And then the second thing that Paul prays for for us is that we will be indwelt by Christ. Verse 17. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. We'll stop there. Now you say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't Christ already indwell us? Well, yes, he does. It is a settled, absolute, objective fact that each and every Christian, by definition, has Christ living in them because the Bible says it. John 14, 20 says Jesus, as Jesus is praying, he says, You will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Colossians 1, 27, Paul speaks of a great mystery, which he says is Christ in you, which is the hope of glory. It's interesting, we hear very often, so often in evangelicalism, this thing about asking, asking Christ into your heart. But this is the only place in the New Testament that actually sort of locates uh, Christ's indwelling as being in our hearts. But it is true, and it is essential. Can you put your finger there in Ephesians and, and flip over to Romans chapter 8? I want to show you something there. Just Paul saying this in another way. Chapter 8 of Romans. Let's look at verse 9. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is what? In you, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So the spirit of God in verse 9 is the spirit of God who dwells in you. In verse 10, because of that, it is Christ who dwells in you. And he says down in verse 9 that if anyone does not have the spirit, he does not belong to God. So beyond a doubt, Christ is in us. He dwells in us, how? Through the Spirit. The Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, all the same Spirit, He dwells in us. And if He dwells in you, Christian, Christ dwells in you. If He dwells in you, God dwells in you. So what does Paul mean here? Well, he says there that we, he prays that Christ may dwell in us in your hearts. If Christ's already in us, why do we pray for that? You know, everyone's moved from a house to another house at one time or another in their life. And after a long day of doing that, or more, you close up the truck, put the ramp back in, shut the front door, you take a deep breath and say, we're finally moved in. But that's only part of it. There's still a lot to do. Some of you are still not done with that from the last move. 
that you made. There's still much to do to get settled. We ask people sometimes for, for months after they moved in, so are you settled in yet? Not are you moved in, they're moved in, but are you settled in? And we mean, have you really made it yours yet? Do you have things where you want them? You got everything figured out, got all the boxes unpacked? Do you have things running the way you want? Have you really made it not just your house, but your home? To be settled is to not just be in a home, but to be at home. And that's kind of the idea here. That's what the word that Paul uses here means. It means to to live in or to dwell in a place in an established or a settled manner. That is part of Paul's prayer here for his readers. And it's part of the process of being filled with the fullness of God. Yes, Christ dwells in you, Christian, and of course Paul recognizes this. But in this prayer, he's, he's asking that the presence of God, the presence of Christ would be more and more evident in your life. That Jesus would more and more be settled in. We want Christ to be evident to anyone who comes into our house, as it were. When we're growing in grace, when we're growing in faith, when we're growing in obedience, Christ is, as it were, making himself more and more at home in us. And how does that happen? How does that take place? Well, Paul tells us there in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Through faith. Not only are we justified by faith, beloved, but we live by faith. Every moment of every day of our life in Christ, we live by faith. We don't don't only trust Christ, don't only trust God for our justification, but we trust Him and we believe Him for our sanctification. And our lives are to be lives of continuing, increasing, functioning faith. That's why we talk about growing in our faith. That's what Paul is saying here, that you would grow in your faith. So we hear in Scripture that we are to increase our faith. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith, he says, is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Not only can love grow, but faith can grow. Faith can increase. And the disciple, remember the disciples said to Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. And that's what Paul means here in Ephesians 3.17. He's not talking about some second blessing that, that we wait now for Christ to dwell in your heart or for the Spirit to dwell in your heart. He's talking about a continual growing in grace and faith, a growing exercise of faith, a growing functioning of faith, and a resultant experiencing of the indwelling of Christ. Paul basically is praying that his readers would continue through increasing strength of the inner man as the Spirit works in them, increasing holiness and sanctification and consecration, that that would become true of them that it would become true of us. 
that it would be a place where Christ and his love and his presence is manifest more evidently, that he would be more at home, more settled in. So in speaking of Christ being settled in, Paul is really praying in this whole section that we would not settle that we would not settle for some anemic spiritual life. Many do. Many are happy to just kind of coast and say, I've got my ticket out of hell and into heaven, and so I'll just coast. Many do. Do you? Are you happy just kind of coasting? We're to be rooted and grounded in love. We're to have Christ dwell in our hearts. We're to grow in our spiritual life. And spiritual doesn't mean some mystical, detached, hyper, hyper-spiritual, monastic kind of silliness that many Christians adopt. What I mean and what Paul means is, is just what he says here at the beginning of the next chapter. That we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and weakness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. That's what that all means. The same thing that we saw earlier, true spirituality is just living according to God's word. It's just trusting in Christ and seeing that faith increase. The Christian life is really a very basic, down-to-earth in time and space, life of loving God and loving our neighbor, not floating around in some aura speaking Christianese to one another and, and thanking God that you're not like your pagan neighbor. We're to increase in that. Do you want to increase in that? Or are you happy to just stay where you are? See, here's the one place in our life where we are never to be content. We are to be always, as Paul said to the Philippians, pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We're always to be working out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that God is working in us. We are to never be satisfied with where we are but to be always seeking to to move forward in our sanctification, loving more, loving better, being more humble, being more forgiving, being more selfless, being more giving. And as we press on toward, as Paul prays for us here, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God as we are becoming more like Christ, as our faith ever increases and as we blessedly enjoy the Spirit strengthening us in the inner man and enjoying the ever clearly manifesting of Christ in us, in our hearts, we rejoice. And we should rejoice. You should rejoice. Rejoice in what God is, is working. Well, we're going to stop there. There's still more to to talk about. We've got two more aspects of this being filled with all the fullness of God. 
and we'll look at that next week. But let us remember that we are to, according to Paul's prayer, well, Paul's prayer for us is that the Spirit would work in us, in our inner man, that he would strengthen us, that he would give us power for living, power for Christian living, and that in the same way Christ would dwell in our hearts more and more through faith, that that would be more evident And so let us seek that and pray that for ourselves and for one another, even as Paul has prayed it for us. Let's pray. Father, we we do pray, Father, that you would do that. We pray, Father, that you would grant to us to be strengthened with, with power through your Spirit in our inner being, in our inner man, Lord. We pray that your Spirit would work in each and every person in this congregation, Lord to strengthen us, to give us what we need, to help in our weakness, Lord. And we pray that that Christ would more and more be manifest in our lives, that his, His dwelling in us would become more and more evident through faith as our faith is increased, as our faith is strengthened, as we look to what He is doing. We pray, Father, that in all of that we would give thanks. As we, as we agree with Paul, Lord, that we desire to be filled with all the fullness of you, with everything that you have for us, O oh God, that we may become more like Christ, our blessed Savior, our blessed Redeemer. We pray this in his name. Amen.